Hi, everyone. This is Scott from Prepare to Answer. I want to share some news with you about an exciting new resource that we've created called So Much More Than Sex. It's no secret that the subject of sex is one of the biggest concerns for young Christians today. That's why we've created So Much More Than Sex for senior teens and young adults. It's a four-part video series, complete with notes and discussion questions, that you can do with your young adults class, small group, or even on your own. The point of the series is to help you shift the narrative about sex away from seeing biblical teaching as little more than an outdated list of do's and don'ts, and replacing it with the overwhelmingly positive, life-giving, and eternally significant vision that the Bible gives for your sexually ordered body. If you want to get in on the So Much More Than Sex series, just follow the link in the episode description. And now we turn to today's episode. My name is Sean Walker, and I want to welcome you to another Prepared to Answer podcast. On today's episode, Scott is going to challenge us on things to consider when we doubt our faith. Well, how do we guard ourselves then? Whether it's guarding our own hearts in the midst of our own battles or struggles, or it's guarding our faith in the kinds of conversations that, Lord willing, God brings into your life as you would live out being an ambassador for Christ in this world. And we certainly need to do that, every one of us who calls on the name of Christ. Well, there's a couple of things I want you to be aware of. I, first, I wrote beware, and then I thought, oh, that sounds too... Eh. But I want you to be aware, which is really what beware means. But beware sounds more like a, a, a negative warning. But two things to be aware of. To recognize and be able to identify that there, when it comes to doubt whether you're doubting your own faith or someone else is casting doubt upon the faith in Christ that you profess. We're going to talk about two kinds of doubts that you need to be able to identify and recognize and know how to respond to appropriately and also to be aware of two kinds of overreactions that people, when they're struggling in faith, tend to, uh, tend to go to one extreme or another. First, I want to tackle the two kinds of doubts to understand and be aware of, to recognize. The first kind of doubt is kind of more of an intellectual doubt. It's the kind of doubt that we may struggle with or be confronted with that asks the question, is Christianity really true? The second kind of doubt is an emotional doubt, which is more of a doubt of the heart. And it's the kind of questions that that are really asking whether Christianity is truly good. Okay, there's differences. Intellectual doubts are common questions, kinds of questions like these. Isn't the Bible hopelessly corrupted? How can you follow the Bible? It's this old book that was written by a bunch of crusty old men centuries ago, and how do you even believe it anymore? Doesn't the Bible contradict science? You know, how can you as a rational person believe this old book of fables and tales? Or did Jesus really rise from the dead, right? Paul said, this is the absolute core of our faith, that Christ rose from the dead. But did he? How do we know that? Can we know that? Right? These are intellectual doubts. These are questions. Emotional doubts come more in the form of these kinds of questions. How could God, how could a good God, how could a loving God ever send someone to hell? Why are Christians so judgmental? And how can you justify, how can you be a Christian 
and justify the terrible things that Christians have done in the past. So those are the two kinds of doubts that we tend to face. And we also need to recognize that there tends to be two kinds of overreactions when we're wrestling with trying to find firm footing in our faith. Sometimes the overreaction, the first overreaction is the one of of total skepticism. And I finding more and more in our culture, we are we are experiencing extremely skeptical culture. Skepticism is almost being put uh, put forward as the new form of intelligentsia, right? If you can question something, that shows you're really smart, right? So doubting is the new kind of smarts. This, the notion that we can't know truth with any certainty, like that's the position of real, kind of real wisdom, is not to be able to say we can know anything with certainty. The other extreme, though, is, is the total other direction, is that we can know things with absolute certainty. In fact, the most important things we do need to know, we must be absolutely certain on. Uh, both of those, I think, are going to get us into hot water. So I just want to talk about these overreactions for a moment, just to kind of expand on them a bit. That the overreaction of skepticism or extreme skepticism really, really makes this statement. It wants to say this either directly or implicitly, that since it's always possible that you could be wrong, you really can't be certain about anything. But I want to ask you a question. I want to see, I think, just see what you think. What's wrong with that statement? What's wrong with taking this kind of position? It might sound, it actually might sound humble. It might sound even pious. But what's wrong with it if, you, if we take that kind of extreme? What problem can it create for us? What problem does it create? Yeah. If that's the case, thank you. If that's the case, then then that means no one can really know anything. And the problem is it's self-refuting, because that includes the skeptic, who is, in being skeptical, making or asserting a confident truth claim. One thing I know for sure, I can't know anything for sure. It's self-refuting starters, but it leaves us in a horrible position, right? It leaves us continually, you know, uncertain about anything. How do we live? We can't live that way. And the reality is we don't live that way. Even the skeptic doesn't live that way. They live as though they confidently do know certain things. Uh, And so sometimes when you face that, what you need to do is just to try and point out, you know, that's, that's not a sustainable, it's not a livable position and, and look, you don't even live that way. There are some things you know for certain. That's why you look both ways when you cross the street. Because you know for certain if there's a bus coming, you know for certain what's going to happen, right? The other extreme, of course, is absolute certainty. And absolute certainty wants to take... Absolute certainty is kind of an anxious position. It's a position that says that in order to really know something with confidence, in order to really believe that something's true, I have to be 100% certain about it. Otherwise, I can't believe that it's true. What's the problem with this? 
Yeah. It ends up to be, it's being the case that if that's the case, then there's very little that we could say we would ever believe. Of course, if you've studied philosophy and the history of philosophy, that was Descartes' problem, right? The only thing he could be certain of was that he was doubting, that he was, he was doubting everything. Doubting is a form of thinking, I think, therefore I am. But that created a very un, untenuable foundation for knowledge. That is, everything starts with, with reason, and that led to a host of other problems. Um, but yeah, in that case, there's very little, if anything, we can really know. But the possibility of being wrong or the impossibility of being 100% certain does not eliminate our ability to know things confidently. It doesn't. That's just not, that's not how we come to a position of confident knowledge. The way we come to know things with confidence is we, we entertain or we use all forms of, of information or knowledge gathering skills. Right? We, we use our reason. We look at evidence. We measure our experiences. And a perfectly legitimate source of knowledge is good authority. We look at these kinds of things, these kinds of evidences, and we weigh them, right? I look at something and I realize there's good reason for this, but I also recognize there might be reason against it. And so I look at the reasons and I weigh them. Or I look at the evidences and I weigh them. Or I measure the experiences. Is it possible that you're not in this room right now, that maybe you're just dreaming all of this? Is that possible? It's possible. Does that mean you should doubt that you're even here? No. Because I've experienced being in rooms like this before, and I've experienced dreaming, right? And I can weigh the difference. And there are probably some reason-based tests I can, I can perform to, to make sure I'm not re- uh, dreaming. You could give me a pinch would be a help. We weigh those things together and we come to conclusions. And knowledge isn't something we have to have absolute certainty about in order to be confident. Knowledge and confidence of what we know is, is even something we can grow in over time as we gather more information, as we, as we weigh evidence and experience and even authority. Which means that even in the process of coming to know things, Doubt is part of the process. It's part of asking questions, and and we ought to do that. And so, if you're here today, and you're doubting, you've got deep doubts about your own faith, don't see that as a sign of lack of faith. That it could be that what God is doing is seeking to strengthen your faith, by causing you to ask questions that are going to make you have to search in ways you haven't before. I think asking critical questions of Christianity is a good thing. And the reason I think that is because I'm confident that if we are honest before the Lord and we seek the truth with the help of his spirit, looking into his word, that he will show us what is true and we will grow in our confidence 
which is why Peter said, add to your faith goodness and to your, good, and to your goodness knowledge. Knowledge is something we should be growing in as Christians. But there's something else we need to recognize is that, you know, this is how we come to know things in the world. It's how the common person does around your neighborhood or, or in your school or in your family. But beneath all of this, we all stand upon or all of the knowledge that we hold or build our lives upon rests on an ultimate foundation. And maybe you've heard this referred to as our ultimate worldview or our ultimate assumptions about the world. That ultimately, everyone's knowledge is built upon a foundation of their, their ultimate assumptions about the world. Whether it's conscious or not, that's the case. So whether we're wrestling with overreactions of skepticism or absolute certainty, or we're talking to someone who is, our task is to move toward clear and honest thinking about the assumptions that we hold and why we hold them. You see, it's not enough for someone just to say, look, Christianity is this or that. Here are all the reasons why you shouldn't believe. They may say that. And so what they're doing is they're questioning, questioning the foundation for all that you know. But realize that as they're doing that, they have to be standing on something too. They can't just keep questioning and questioning and questioning without having to, at some point, defend their own position. Defend where they're standing. What's the foundation that you're resting your understanding of the world, your knowledge, your beliefs, what does it rest on? And then asking the question, can that foundation, can your worldview support what you believe to be true? Of course, for the Christian, we understand that there is one firm foundation upon which all of our knowledge is built. And that's Christ. Christ is the foundation. He's the starting point. We don't need some evidence or some argument or something else that will undergird Christ and make him legitimate. He doesn't need that. He is the foundation. He is the rock. Not just for faith, but for knowledge. I can't count how many times in the New Testament the Apostle Paul in particular describes coming to faith in Christ as coming to a knowledge of the truth. Right? Our faith is about coming to know what is real, what is really the case about God and the world and our lives in relationship to both. But it all focuses on Jesus. Here's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. He says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. That includes all of the people in this world who don't believe in him or who reject him. All of the nations, all of the world's powers, everything was created through Christ and for him. He's before everything. 
and in, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body. He's our head. That's the head of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn. That means he has supremacy in terms of rank and position ahead of everything, everyone in all creation, including from among the dead, so that in everything he would have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Everything in all of creation, whether it's the angels in heaven or humanity on the earth or Satan and his forces, all things are being, being brought to one under the head of one authority, and that's Christ Jesus. And the things that God is redeeming, he is redeeming through Christ's blood. So the one thing I want to avoid or beware of doing in the ministry I have, which is apologetics, you know, the, the, the skill or the equipping of defending our faith, that sometimes we think of apologetics and defending our faith as, as a real intellectual exercise. You know, we have to become intellectuals to learn all these arguments, to, to counter every challenge. We sometimes think about apologetics like it's Christian ninjutsu. Like we just have to learn the right answers and any question we can defeat. And it doesn't work that way. That we can't, we can't change people's minds. We can't cause them to see Christ uh, on our own. That it's Christ who opens people's eyes. And that when he does, when he makes himself known to them, just as if you're a believer here, the moment he made himself known to you, you put your faith in him, but you were responding to that which God made known to you. Your faith is grounded in knowledge. That's knowledge of Jesus who makes himself known to us. So, the foundation for true knowledge upon which Christians through all ages have stood secure is Christ. Let's ask any question we need to ask, but let's not forget where we go back for our confidence, where we look to to anchor and secure our faith. It's Christ. Right? So, having said that, I want to just move for a moment to then how we go about defending when doubts come, whether it's doubts come into our own minds, we wrestle with, or doubts from others that they challenge us with, whether they're intellectual or emotional. And this is where, this is where the, the work of or the study of apologetics can be so useful. Uh, and it's grounded in, of course, the instruction of Peter in 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16, where Peter says this, and this is why I wanted to punctuate so clearly why Christ is our foundation. He starts this way. He says first, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. If you want to confidently and capably and effectively bear witness for Christ in this world such that 
such that people would listen to you and hear you and engaging with you, they might have their eyes open to Christ. Then first and foremost, Christ must be Lord of all in your life. He wants all of you. Your heart must be completely and utterly his. And here's why. Because you cannot pass on that, that which you don't possess. How will you effectively bear witness for Christ if he is not first and foremost your everything? But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Then Peter says, and always be prepared to give an answer. The word he uses is apologion. That's where we get our English word apologetics from. To give an answer or a defense to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And, and in great part, the apologetic enterprise of kind of what we're used to in apologetics, much, much of it is scientific, but there's historical and archaeological, so much that's evidence-based, so much of it is so effective in responding to the intellectual kinds of challenges. And I think that's absolutely invaluable. And you know what? If you have a real aptitude for some of those things, then by all means, if God, if God has given you a capacity in the sciences or even in the histories or, or in archaeology or any of those things, if you have a passion in that, then use it for Christ. If you're, if you're majoring in the sciences, even if you're in a secular university, ask God how he can use you to take your scientific education and use it to reveal God to the world. But then Peter goes on and says, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And I think Peter includes that, and oftentimes in apologetics, we overlook that part of the passage because we're so interested in the the evidential arguments, right? The proofs that will, that will stand up, you know, and, and get accolades, I guess, maybe in the more academic circles. Don't get me wrong, those things are valuable. I, I just love, you know, people like William Lane Craig and, and other scholars, John Lennox and, and people like that, who can stand up and talk about how mathematics reveals a creator. And those kinds of arguments, I love that. But sometimes we just go there and we forget that we're not just dealing with intellectual doubt, we're dealing with emotional doubt. And that the way we respond is just as important as what we say. We respond with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, realizing that some people you talk to may not have any intellectual doubts about Christianity. They may be all emotional. They've been hurt. Or they see things in the news and the spin, and they say, I don't want that because that's not good. And what they need an appeal to, what they need a response to, is their heart. And that is the, that's the role of, and I think equally, of, of an apologetic, of giving a verbal defense. Whether it's to the intellect or to the heart, we prepare ourselves to answer to whatever that might be. And I would almost argue with you that as I watch the landscape in, in VG even mentioned the changes in even in the last few years 
the opposition that I am hearing and seeing against, publicly speaking, against Christianity in a, in a public discussion, I feel is more emotional than intellectual. There's more heat than, than there is light. There's more anger than there is real curious questioning or intellectual doubt. And so I think this part of, of being becoming skilled responders in gentleness and respect is going to pay dividends if we can learn that. So you don't have to be an expert in particle physics to speak well to a particle physicist. Uh, you could be a regular person like me and learn to do that. This podcast has been a ministry of Prepared to Answer. Our mission at Prepared to Answer is to help prepare, equip, and encourage the Church of Jesus Christ to grow in confidence of faith by teaching Christians to think like Jesus. To access more resources to help you begin understanding life and the world around you with the mind of Jesus, visit our website at www.preparedtoanswer.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at, at prepared to answer or contact us directly by email at info at prepared to May the Lord bless and keep you.